Support for this program comes from listeners like you. To find out more, visit us online at theschoolofchrist.org. of the Holy Spirit. This is part one of the series. As usual, there is an introduction to the series that explains what we are talking about and why it matters. And so uh, if you stumbled upon this recording, I encourage you to go back and listen to the introduction so that you can uh, be oriented to what we are discussing and why it matters, why it is important. But we begin the ministry of the Holy Spirit teaching with what I'm going to title the Old Testament Promise. The Old Testament Promise. Although we think of the ministry of the Holy Spirit as a New Testament pillar, and it is, what we see happening in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, was not something that was new or unimagined or or unheard of, but was the result of a promise and prophecies from the Old Testament. Just as the coming of the Messiah was foretold in Scripture, so the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was also foretold in Scripture, prophesied in advance, so that people who had spiritual discernment and scriptural knowledge would understand and know the ways of God and what He was doing his intention, his purpose, his will, revealed in many ages, across many ages to come, and ultimately fulfilled. We see the fulfillment in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that record the ministry of Jesus. We see the fulfillment of it in the book of Acts in particular in the ministry of the apostles and of the early ecclesia. But I'm saying that was the result of Old Testament promises and prophecies. So this is the foundation for our understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I want to take you back in the Old Testament and really focus on three primary points that establishes the promise of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. First, we will consider the possibility of Moses. The possibility of Moses. Secondly, the prophecy of Ezekiel. And third, the promise of Joel or Joel however you want to pronounce it. So the possibility of Moses, the prophecy of Ezekiel, the promise of Joel, and if we look at those three elements, it will give us a good foundation for understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, being foretold, being prophesied in advance of its fulfillment. Now, I said last time in the introduction that I would give you a series overview, and we ran out of time, and I didn't have a chance to get to this slide. But I want to give you kind of a roadmap for understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit going through Scripture, because it is a large topic, and it is an important topic. So these are not message titles, but these are more like milestones that I want to cover in however many messages it takes. And I think that there are at least seven milestones or seven 
things that I want to communicate. And if I do that in the course of however many messages it is, then I will be satisfied that I have um, communicated what the Lord gave me to communicate to you and that you have a really good understanding of the scriptural basis of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and not so that you can uh, fill your brain with more facts and information, but so all of us can cooperate with the Holy Spirit and not grieve the Holy Spirit and not quench the Holy Spirit. But we will cooperate with and be adjusted to the government of the Holy Spirit. Because without that adjustment to the Holy Spirit, a Christ-centered faith is impossible. And what you will have instead of a Christ-centered faith based on relationship is you'll have a church-centered faith based on religion. And that is exactly the result. It's the consequence. It's the catastrophe of not having the Holy Spirit, not cooperating with the Spirit, but rather grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit in our organized churches, organized religion. It may come to a shock, as a shock to some people, to realize that organized religion does not guarantee the blessing of God, nor the presence of Jesus, nor the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus, speaking to the scribes and Pharisees and the religious leaders of Judaism, he could very easily say the same thing to the religious leaders of churchianity today. Or to the people who attend church all over the world. But he did say to those Jewish religious leaders and to the Jews that you draw near to me with your mouth and you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me and you teach for commandments the doctrines of men. You draw near to me with your mouth you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And so Jesus says that the Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and truth, not in vanity, but in spirit and truth. And so, um, of course, the revealing of Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That revealing of Christ is as much a revealing, a revelation of the Holy Spirit in a way that was prophesied in the beginning, but no one had ever experienced or seen or witnessed, much less uh, participated in. So that's why we are starting in the Old Testament, and we'll just give a foundational survey so that we can better understand that when Jesus revealed himself and began to preach, when he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, that these statements, these actions, these teachings were not um, brand new, revelatory, unique, original, but they were the fulfillment of something that Scripture had been talking about and that um, the people of God had been waiting for for a long, long time. So as we trace that, and of course, we'll spend most of our time in the New Testament because this is where we see the, the revelation the manifesting of the Holy Spirit, and it begins to get very practical at that point, not just um, not just in terms of a promise or a prophecy, 
but an actual practical fulfillment. And um, we'll see how that really got started there in the book of Acts and then how that progressed through the growth of the early ecclesia and then into the letters of Paul and of others endeavoring to help the followers of Jesus to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and to be adjusted to the government of the Holy Spirit. So if we did a, a map of this series, it would look something like this, beginning with the Old Testament promise, which is where we are now, to establish the prophetic foundation for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I think that also answers why God found it necessary to do it this way. Then we'll look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. We will also dig very deeply into what Jesus actually taught about the Holy Spirit. So in the life of Jesus, we'll look at the life, the ministry of Jesus, and how Jesus himself was led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit. But when we come to the actual teachings of Jesus, that's when we go into more in-depth of what Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit, whom he calls the Comforter and the promise of the Father. And then, of course, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the early ecclesia, particularly in the book of Acts, and how that radically transformed the disciples of Jesus how it changed them from the inside out and how it transformed them and then transformed those who believed within Judaism and then expanding from there beyond Judaism, beyond Judea and Samaria into the uttermost parts of the earth. Again, that would not be possible without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We will then consider what I believe to be three, and maybe this isn't everything, but it's it's three of the most important principles within this ministry of the Holy Spirit. Wisdom and revelation is one of them. Wisdom and revelation. This is where we get discernment. Uh, it is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to teach us, to lead us into all truth. And towards that purpose is a second primary function, which is spiritual gifts. The gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is what marks the early believers in that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they exercised spiritual gifts. What are those spiritual gifts? What is the purpose of those gifts? How do they function and operate? And how can we cooperate with the Holy Spirit so that those spiritual gifts can flow through us as well as the Spirit leads? Because you know, of course, that anyone can abuse those spiritual gifts, and they have. We want to see what the scriptures have to say about that, that even uh, even in the early ecclesia, Paul had to write letters to the young believers to help them navigate and govern and cooperate with these spiritual gifts in a way that encouraged freedom and the liberty of the spirit, but did not... Uh, devolve and degenerate into some kind of a fleshly uh, manifestation or a false gift. And so if that was an issue in the early ecclesia, you better believe it's an issue today, and it has been uh, since the charismatic renewal of the early 20th century. And for all I know, it's uh, still going on today in, the, in various forms. 
I say for all I know because I'm not part of it anymore. And, and don't need to be. Don't, I don't need to be educated on, on all of that now <laughs> because I have uh, seen and heard it all. And um, I, I, don't, I don't believe that there is anything new that I have not already seen and um, all of the abuses and the excesses, as well as genu genuine expressions of spiritual gifts. I'm, I am not one who believes that the gifts are not for today. I certainly believe that they are, and I practice them, and I encourage others to practice them. But all of us are familiar with how those spiritual gifts can be faked, how they can be abused, how they, how the false prophetic gift in particular can be uh, used to mislead people who are carnal and fleshly and seeking uh, certain spiritual experiences that turn out to be anything but governed by the Holy Spirit. So we'll we'll talk about all of those things because it is important and it is a critical function of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But I think if we get adjusted to the government of the Holy Spirit, and we have that wisdom and revelation piece that I'm talking about here, if we have that, let me see if I can mark that. Well, I'm highlighting it. Let's see. There we go. If we have that wisdom and revelation of the Holy Spirit, then the spiritual gifts will be proper. They will be useful. They will be edifying. They will not be fake or false or fraudulent, but they'll be genuine and real. And uh, we certainly need that. No question about it. But even more important than spiritual gifts is the final element, and that is the spiritual fruit. Oh, we've got lots of gifted people, but we don't have very many fruitful people. Lots of spiritual gifts, not a lot of spiritual fruit. And again, that was an issue for the early ecclesia as well, especially in the Corinthian church. So that's not a problem as long as you acknowledge it and learn from it and grow. And the challenge I have, of course, with the modern expression of these things in the charismatic movement and the Pentecostal movement and these other various uh, outpourings and such is the emphasis on gifts without fruit and the unwillingness to challenge or allow anyone else to challenge the spiritual immaturity. There is a misperception, a misconception that spiritual gifts equals spiritual maturity, and that's incorrect. Spiritual fruit equals spiritual maturity. It does not require, spiritual maturity is not a requirement to exercise spiritual gifts. In fact, the spiritual gifts are intended to help us become spiritually mature, and therefore spiritual maturity is not a, pre a prerequisite to exercising spiritual gifts. That's why the carnal ecclesia in Corinth, even though they were fleshly and they were not spiritually mature, they were still able to exercise spiritual gifts. By contrast, today's charismatic church believes spiritual gifts are the epitome of spiritual maturity and that is a grave grave mistake well then that means whoever has the loudest or most um, eye-catching spiritual gift you know the loudest voice in the room shouting thus saith the lord must be the most spiritually mature person and so who are we to question it? We should just listen, obey, fall in line, and never question God's anointed. After all, look at these spiritual gifts that he is exercising. In fact, 
Um, there's a, a movie, a movie out right now. I don't want to say the name of it because I don't want to advertise the movie, but it is glorifying um, this exact thing that I'm talking about. Uh, Somebody in the Jesus movement uh, back in the day, a few decades ago, who exercised spiritual gifts and was put up on a pedestal for their spiritual gifts, but um, absolutely in their personal life, absolutely no spiritual fruit not and if you can't discern the difference between spiritual gifts and spiritual fruit then you'll make that mistake and you'll end up following people around because they've got a gift because they can lay hands on people and heal them or because they can prophesy and say thus saith the lord and because they have discerning of spirits and and can cast out demons well those are legitimate spiritual gifts But it's not a substitute for spiritual fruit. But the attitude is, well, hey, God's using them in a mighty way. They got some problems. (laughs) Yeah, tell me about it. Well, they got some problems. What are you going to do about that? Uh, nothing. (laughs) We're just going to enjoy their ministry, enjoy their spiritual gifts. Organized church is not about spiritual maturity. It's about entertainment. It's about getting your needs met. It's about social interaction. It's about the vanity of worship. In vain they do worship me. Exercising spiritual gifts, but without wisdom and revelation and without spiritual fruit and therefore without spiritual maturity. So what are you doing? Building your house on the sand. And then there comes a day when all that is hidden is revealed. But so long as we lift up people and put them on a pedestal for their gift, this is going to be a problem. So we need to press on beyond that, beyond spiritual gifts to spiritual fruit. Now, if I can cover all of these keystones in this series, I think this will be a good series. I think it will be helpful, encouraging, edifying. It will tell you what you need to know, what you need to look out for. But most of all, how can we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, not Resist the Holy Spirit and not grieve the Holy Spirit. And also not despise spiritual gifts just because many have abused those spiritual gifts. It it may sound like that's what I'm doing, but I'm not despising the spiritual gift at all. I'm despising the misuse of spiritual gifts in the organized church, in the charismatic movement, the emphasis on gifts rather than fruit, the emphasis on gifts rather than wisdom, that's what I am critical of. If I see a genuine move of the Holy Spirit and a genuine expression of spiritual gifts, I am all for it because we need that ministry of the Holy Spirit. But I'm not looking to a man or a woman to provide me with that, as if I'm lacking unless I have that. We are blessed already with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, and as we'll see in in tonight's message, um, God's intention is for all of us to enjoy, to be filled with His Spirit, to enjoy and practice spiritual gifts as the Spirit leads and guides, and then to Produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is perfection in love and all the things that flow from love. It's not about the power, it's about the love. And once you are perfected in love, then the power, the real power, can begin to manifest itself. Okay. I hope that makes sense to you. If not, stay tuned and... I trust that it will become even more clear as we as we proceed along in the series. 
But we start with the possibility of Moses. It's kind of a weird title, so I'll I'll explain it when we read the scripture together. It's in Numbers, Numbers chapter eleven. So it's all the way in the front of your Bible: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And this will be Numbers chapter 11, probably not a place you go to every day. <laughs> so I'll give you a few seconds to turn there and join me there. And that also gives me a chance to have a sip of some green tea. Numbers chapter 11. And we'll start in verse, uh, we'll, we'll read beginning in verse 24. Let's do that. So Numbers eleven twenty four, that makes sense since that's what I have on the screen. Numbers eleven twenty four through 29. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, this is the possibility of Moses. Verse 29, Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, he and the elders of Israel. So I'm, I'm calling this the possibility of Moses. Here's the context for what's happening here in Numbers 11. The people are complaining about the food. They're not just complaining about the lack of meat to eat. They are actually crying. They're weeping, moaning and groaning and crying, and remembering fondly back to all the fish that they ate in Egypt. All the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. <laughs> And now they're complaining because all they have to eat is this manna, this miraculous bread from heaven is all they have to eat now. And they're complaining about it. And it says that Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. And it says the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused and Moses also was displeased. <laughs> So the people are complaining about the food, and Moses is complaining about the people. And he has done this before. Why? Praying to God, or complaining to God, however you want to characterize it, probably both. Why have you laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them? that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all these people? They weep all over me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone. <laughs> Can't you just hear the frustration in Moses' voice? The burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. <laughs> If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. Moses is saying, I've had it. If I have found favor in your sight, do me a favor and put me out of my misery. Kill me here and now. They're weeping all over me. <laughs> 
I can't stand it. <laughs> so the people are complaining about the food. Moses is complaining of the, about the people. And so the Lord said, okay, here's what I want you to, to do. Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel. I'm going to, I'm going to feed the people. I'm going to send you so much meat that it's going to come out of your nose and out of your ears. But in the meantime, to share the burden of leadership, what I want you to do is gather 70 elders at the tabernacle of meeting to share the burden of leadership. And God said I would, that he would take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them. And so that's exactly what we see happening. Moses went out, told the people the words of the Lord, gathered these 70 elders of the people together. We talked about the significance of those 70 elders last time. They are known as the Sanhedrin in the New Testament, uh, possibly even in the Old Testament, but they are specifically mentioned in the New Testament as the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders of Israel. And these are the ones before whom Stephen made his uh, defense. And it's also the same 70 before whom Jesus was brought and questioned and then condemned. So that, that 70 men of the elders of Israel has its beginnings here in the wilderness when Moses is leading the people. And so God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the same upon them. And that's exactly what happened. Now, here's the significance of this. The spirit was upon Moses and the Spirit was upon the elders, but that is not the same thing as being within them or filling them. This is early, early, early in the scriptural record. There's no such thing as the baptism in the Holy Spirit, no such thing as being filled with the Holy Spirit. But what you hear time and again is that the Spirit of the Lord came upon so-and-so. And the idea is, because they are not filled with the Spirit, the Spirit is not within them or dwelling or living inside of them. So the Spirit is upon them. And unless you were a prophet like Moses, the Spirit would only come upon people uh, temporarily. And so that's why it's interesting in verse 25 where it says that when the Spirit rested upon these 70 elders, that they prophesied. That is, they spoke by the inspiration of that Spirit. They spoke spiritual revelation and spiritual truth, and they worshiped God in spirit. And when the Spirit rested upon them, it says that they prophesied but that didn't make them a prophet, or that didn't make them prophets just because they prophesied. But they were, they were temporarily under the influence of the Spirit of the Lord. And under that influence of the Spirit, they prophesied. But it says they never did so again. This was a one-time event. It was never repeated. God was not saying, I'm going to raise up 70 prophets just like you, Moses. But he says, I'm going to take the same spirit that is upon you. I'm going to put it upon them so that they can share the burden of leadership. And when that happened, uh, they began to prophesy that one time. But, th but that is the key distinction here. So we're not saying that the Spirit did not exist in the Old Testament because there are plenty of instances, we'll look at a few here in a second, where the Spirit did come upon them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon them. 
but the Spirit of the Lord was not poured out. The Spirit of the Lord did not indwell them or fill them or baptize them the way we see happening in the book of Acts. But the effect was pronounced in that the elders here prophesied during this one-time event, but they never did so again. Now, here's what I mean by the possibility of Moses. Joshua sees that God is pouring out his spirit upon the 70 elders and that they are prophesying, and he gets a little bit jealous of Moses. He feels that Moses is the only one who should be a prophet. Moses is the man of God, and who are all of these other people? So in his, in his zealousness and also in his jealousy, he says, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. They're not prophets. Tell them to stop prophesying. Stop proclaiming these things in the name of the Lord as if you are a prophet. So Joshua kind of misunderstood the significance of this. And this is when Moses reveals an exciting possibility that he sees. And it's the possibility for all the Lord's people to be prophets. Are you zealous for my sake, he says? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. See, this would solve so many problems, wouldn't it? If only God would put the Spirit of the Lord upon all the people, they'd stop whining and moaning and groaning and complaining. They would see and experience God the way Moses sees and experiences God. And these 70 elders, they were certainly transformed, even though it only happened once. And it never happened again. It was a powerful experience, a powerful transformation. And Joshua said, that we need to be careful with this. Tell them to stop. Moses said, no. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon all of them. That would solve so many problems. <laughs> and that is kind of a good idea, isn't it? If the Lord would only pour out his spirit on all the people as he poured out his spirit upon Moses, think of a million or more people with the same power and authority and anointing as Moses. That would, that would be an earth-shattering event. But I'm calling that the possibility of Moses. Moses saw the possibility that if God can do that, if he can take the same spirit upon me and pour it out upon 70 elders, 70 people, and why stop there? Oh, that the Lord would pour out his spirit upon all the people. Now, of course, you know that never happened, at least while Moses was around. But it is a possibility that Moses foresaw. The possibility that all the Lord's people could be prophets. The possibility that the Lord would put his spirit upon all of the people. So that's the first indication. The possibility of Moses. He saw that possibility and he expressed it. Now, in addition to Moses there and these 70 elders, there were other people in the Old Testament who experienced the Holy Spirit upon them and sometimes rarely even in them. And these would include people like Balaam, Numbers 24, 2, Othniel in Judges 3, most of these are in Judges. Gideon, Judges 6, 34. 
where basically the spirit of the Lord would come upon them and, and in a leadership capacity, they would lead them into battle or they would govern Israel. This was before there were kings. And so you see this happening among the prophets and among the judges of Israel. Samson, Judges 14, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Then you see Saul and his men, 1 Samuel 10, 10, where Saul, the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. Later on, it says that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Since the Lord was grieved with Saul, the Holy Spirit departed from him. And then, of course, we know about David, 1 Samuel 16, 13. I'm going to read that. I highlighted that so that I could read it. 1 Samuel 16, 13. Because David is unusual and unique in that I believe David was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelled within him in a unique and powerful way, in an unusual way, in a way similar to Moses. It's actually uh, 1 Samuel 16, 13. when the prophet Samuel went to anoint David as the king of Israel. It says um, that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And it says the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. The spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. In the very next verse, it says, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. It also says, A distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. You might have a question about that. I have an answer, but it's a kind of a lengthy answer. And it, it would take up all of my time. But um, the best way to answer that simply is that the understanding of good and evil spirits in the Old Testament were, was not fully developed. It was very elementary at that point. They didn't have a concept at that point. They didn't have the revelation that we enjoy of spiritual warfare, meaning they were not aware that there were that there was a source of evil and so they attributed both good and evil as coming from the lord now that that's the the quick answer it's not uh, it's not a complete answer but we'll have to uh circle back to that again if if it if it's going to cause you to uh have an issue <laughs> Scripture is a progressive revelation, and so we can't expect people living in the time of Samuel to have the same revelation as Paul the Apostle. It's no reflection on Samuel. It's not lifting Paul up. It just means that Scripture is a progressive revelation. But the, the main idea that I want to communicate here is that when Samuel anointed David, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Something changed in David. And I believe he, he was filled with the, with the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Psalms, he references that. Where can I flee from your spirit? There's nowhere that I can go that your spirit is not there. Your spirit is with me always. And when he had sinned and he, he prayed and he repented, he said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So I believe that David enjoyed a very unique relationship with the Holy Spirit, um, almost to the extent that you and I can enjoy today and that they did enjoy in the Ecclesia. 
of the New Testament. But I still think, uh, however, however good that relationship with the Holy Spirit was, it still was not equal to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Uh, I, I don't know that David actually performed any miracles. I don't know that David uh, exercised any gifts, any spiritual gifts. Um, but he, he had a wonderful fellowship and communion with the Holy Spirit to the extent that it was possible. To the extent that the Holy Spirit would come upon people, sometimes fill them or, or be in them in the Old Testament, but still not to the measure that we see in the New Testament, because it says the Spirit had not been given and would not be given until Jesus had been glorified. And so the, the revealing of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit in its fulfillment is even uh, greater than what David understood. But David is one of the few who did understand in his time the Spirit of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Daniel is another one. It's, it says of Daniel in Daniel 4.8 that he is filled with the Spirit of the Holy God. And that's, uh, that's the assessment of Nebuchadnezzar. That Daniel is filled with the Spirit of the Holy God. And in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel uh, chapter 2 and, and other references in Ezekiel, it talks about that the Spirit of the Lord took me or the Spirit of the Lord came upon me. Let me check that. It may actually, Ezekiel 2.2, 2, it may actually say that it filled him. Let's see. Ezekiel chapter 2. Yeah, the, I highlighted this because it's interesting. It says, uh, then, then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet. And I heard him who spoke to me. Uh, so we, Ezekiel is also having uh, these wonderful experiences with the Holy Spirit, but Ezekiel is a prophet. And so um, unless you are a prophet or a king or an elder, it looks like the Holy Spirit uh, does not come upon you in the Old Testament. Is that fair to say? Everyone we've looked at so far has been either a judge, a king, an elder, or a prophet. If you can find another example, um, let me know. But it seems like we can say two things. Thing number one is the Holy Spirit only came upon people for the most part. Occasionally, it might say, for example, when Ezekiel here says the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me. That's probably another way of saying that the, that the Spirit came uh, inside me or filled me from within. Uh, my point is that that was not the standard experience, very rare. And for 99% of people in the Old Testament who did experience the Holy Spirit, it was the Spirit of the Lord that came upon them. It was not a relationship that they enjoyed with the Holy Spirit being continually filled. The difference with David, that he was anointed and that the Holy Spirit was with him from that day forward, that seems to suggest that his was a deeper uh, relationship with the Holy Spirit, not just an occasional um, experience. So here's the thing. Unless you are a judge, a king, an elder, or a prophet, that is someone with some sort of leadership responsibility in the Old Testament in Israel, the Holy Spirit just didn't come upon you. The Holy Spirit didn't fill people. We don't see those things happening with any regularity. 
except within a select number of people. So that is getting towards what Moses was hoping for, but not completely. As Moses says, I wish everyone could have the Spirit of the Lord upon them the way I do. That would solve a lot of problems. That would be a wonderful thing. And he was right. So then in, in Ezekiel, now we'll look at the promise of Ezekiel in, in here in section two, and the rest of this will go much quickly, much more quickly because I'm aware of my time. And I want to be respectful, respectful of your time. So Ezekiel chapter 36, we'll start reading in verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. So that's a lengthy chapter and a lengthy um, prophecy there that I just selectively pulled a few verses out. But here's the context. Israel has sinned and have been taken into exile in Babylon. Ezekiel is uh, contemporary with Daniel, meaning Ezekiel is, is actually in exile with Israel there in Babylon, prophesying to the exiles. So Israel has sinned. They're in exile. They've been scattered among the nations. God promises to bring them back and restore them. But what will prevent them from falling away again? Well, the solution well, let's start with the problem. We can't appreciate the solution until we appreciate the problem. Well, they, they fell into sin and they committed idolatry and they did all of these terrible things, violating God's law. What's the problem? The problem is not with God's law, but with God's people. That's always been the problem, always will be the problem. It's not what God requires that's the problem. It's our inability or our unwillingness to comply with God's law, God's commands. I mean, Adam was given one command, Adam and Eve given one command, and they couldn't even keep that one command. And then Moses comes down from the mountain with 10 commandments plus another 612. In addition to the 10, 613 mitzvot. How many of those do you think that they kept? And then Jesus comes and he restores things back to the simplicity of just a couple of commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Again, getting back to something that's really, really simple. And we tend to complicate that, and, and we have a hard time following that. What's the problem? It's not with what God is requiring. It's with the people from whom he requires it. And the problem specifically with Israel is they have hearts of stone and they have dead spirits. So here's what God says I'm going to do. The solution to this problem is not giving them more commandments. And that, that's also not, not the solution to make you more spiritually mature, is to give you more religion. That will make you spiritually immature. Religion is the greatest single hindrance, and specifically church, is the greatest single hindrance to spiritual growth and maturity that I can think of. As I said, that's not the goal of church, to make you spiritually mature. It has other goals, to make you socially connected with them, financially supportive of them. But the goal is not spiritual maturity. If anything, it is spiritual dependence. 
You have to be there every time the doors are open or you might backslide. You have to follow and submit to spiritual authority or the devil might get you. <laughs> so the answer and the solution is not giving people more religion, more commandments, more do's and don'ts. The solution is to give them a new heart. Make them a new creation where old things have passed away and all things have become new. Take away their heart of stone. Give them a heart of flesh that is a living heart instead of a stony heart. And God says, I will not withhold my spirit. On the contrary, I will freely put my spirit within them. Now, we are beginning to see the potential of what Moses considered as a possibility, a wish, a hope. Now forming into a promise, I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Then you will walk in my statutes and then you will keep my judgments and do them. That's the problem. It isn't the statutes and the judgments. The problem is not it's so hard to love your neighbor and love God. It's so hard to submit yourself to God's will. No, that it, it's not the will. It's not the love that's hard. It's our hearts that are hard. That's why it's hard. Hearts of stone and dead spirits. So God says, I'll pour out my spirit within you. And the secret to that is once we are motivated by love, God is love. And once we have that spirit within us, it changes our heart so that we want to obey God. And we're doing it from within, not being forced into compliance from the outside, but willingly surrendering to love from the inside. And that's the solution. So the end result is that they will walk in his ways, and we will as well. We will bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in loving obedience and fulfill the law and anything else that God requires. Relationship will succeed where religion has failed. That's the idea. Relationship with God based on love will succeed where religion about God based on law will always fail. If you've got 613 laws, you've got too many. But this is his commandment. Believe on the name of, of the Lord Jesus. Love God and love your neighbor. And the only way to do that, God says is if I take away your heart of stone and give you a new heart. If I put my spirit within you, and this is what Moses was getting at, think of all the problems it would solve. Why doesn't God just pour out his spirit on everybody? And God says, that's a good idea. So here's what I'm going to do. Exactly what, exactly what Moses said. But more than that, I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put my spirit not upon you, but within you. Then you will keep my judgments and you will walk in my ways. And all the other wonderful things that follow after that. Spiritual gifts, spiritual fruit, wisdom, and revelation, discernment. Keeping you from uncleanness. All of these things are, are the result of having a new heart and having his spirit within us, but it's just a promise in Ezekiel. They never experienced it. They didn't experience it. Now, a question comes up, if this is true, why did Israel still rebel against God and reject Jesus? And the answer is not all of them did reject Jesus. Many thousands of them believed on him on the day of Pentecost, and this was the remnant who received the promise of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and thereafter exactly as the Lord promised. 
But there is more to the promise than just what God is promising to do for Israel. And this is where it gets really exciting. And we will close with this scripture. It's the prophecy of Joel in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And we will revisit this again when we study Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost. But you'll recall it mostly because Peter quotes from Joel on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit is actually poured out. But Joel 2.28, here's the original prophecy. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. I will show Wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Then it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. See, God's working with a remnant. Everybody can, but not everybody will. And so God always preserves a remnant. So again, we are familiar with Acts chapter 2, where Peter quotes from this prophecy on the day of Pentecost. This is that. They said, what do, what do these things mean? Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes what I just read to you. Now, in the context of the prophecy, if you'll read in, in uh, that chapter, this all of this, it shall come to pass afterward or in the last days, this follows judgment and repentance and restoration of the nation. It's not what triggers it, it's what follows after judgment, repentance, and restoration. It shall come to pass afterward, it says, or as Peter says, in the last days. Now, specifically, yes, I believe in the last days uh, being the age that we live in, but so has most everyone else who has ever lived and thought they were in the last days as well. But what we know for sure is that the last days that Peter is referring to refers to the 40 years from the crucifixion of Jesus to the destruction of Jerusalem. That's 40 years from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70. This was their last chance. This was the final generation of those people. And what you see is God giving them this final opportunity as, and, and I think Peter expressed it perfectly when he said, save yourself from this wicked and perverse generation. Because the nation was past the point of saving. And what God is doing is pulling out a remnant in Zion and in Jerusalem. There shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Why not everybody? Because everybody's not going to go along with it. And that system was under the judgment. That system had rejected Christ. And there could be no receiving of the Holy Spirit so long as you are unrepentant in your rejection of Christ. Because Christ is the one who is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit and a fire. So if, you're, if you reject Jesus, then uh, you are rejecting the Holy Spirit. But there is this 40 years of grace between the crucifixion of Jesus in A.D. 30 and the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. These are approximate dates, of course. But generally speaking, a generation is 40 years, and this is the last days, according to Peter. That's why he says you better repent. And if you repent, you'll receive the promise of the Spirit that God says he would pour out in these last days. But here is... The exciting thing, everything doesn't rise and fall with Israel, what Israel does or doesn't do. This is where the view shifts to a global 
perspective where God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on all flesh. That he's not just going to pour out his Holy Spirit on Jewish people, but on, on not just on Messianic Jews, but I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That means everybody. Now, let me ask you a question. It's an easy question with an easy answer. Has everybody received the Holy Spirit? And the easy answer is no, they haven't. If that's the case, then God is still pouring out his spirit on all flesh. And so that brings us right into the great and awesome day of the Lord. And that's why I believe those last days, in the sense of a global perspective, it extends all the way up to the return of Christ. But it, it also had very specific application to that 40 years from the crucifixion to the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem. But notice the prophecy, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So Moses was the first to see the possibility of someone other than himself having the Spirit of God. There were some notable people such as David, Daniel, Ezekiel, and others who knew something of having the Holy Spirit. But the promise of God was for the whole nation just as Moses foresaw, that God would take away their heart of stone, give them a living heart, and put his Spirit within them. They would then become new creations. And that is what really Peter is inviting them to do in Acts chapter 2, to become new creations. Repent and save yourself from this wicked generation. Well, that experience was unknown to anyone in the Old Testament. It would only be fulfilled in the last days after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But before the Spirit would be poured out, we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And so we will take a look at that in the next message. If you'd like to get additional teachings, audio recordings, books, and other Christ-centered resources to help you grow spiritually, visit us online at theschoolofchrist.org.